there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. The first confirmed diagnosis of a sexually transmitted disease causing Carposi's sarcoma was made by Dr. John Gullett in San Francisco. The first reusable spacecraft, the Space Shuttle Columbia, was launched from Cape Canaveral at 7 o'clock a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And John Kennedy O'Toole won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for the amazing, remarkable A Confederacy of Dunces 12 years after he killed himself, despondent that he couldn't get the book published. Also, the very first test drive of Bigfoot, the very first monster truck, took place in a field near St. Louis, Missouri. So, oh, yes, shit was crushed. And forget all of that, because we're here to talk instead about the eclectic lineup of movies that came out in April of 1981. Hi, this is Scott Weiberg. I'm the co-host of 80s All Over. I'm Drew McQueenie. This is one of those months. It is all over the place. And half of this stuff I've never heard of, not even when it originally came out. For the most part, you and I are rediscovering a lot of these movies, and it's both a joy and occasionally a real freaking chore. <laughs> well, look, one of the things that I one of the things that I personally am, am worried about is making sure that we get everything right. And it is really tricky with release dates because of the way regional releases and things worked back then. So once again, we're gonna uh, do a real quick run through of Say oops upside your head, say oops upside your head. Say we pulled a boner because it is uh, like- and our listeners should get an example of like that. Like, I mean, for example, Porky's Canadian film opened in South Carolina in late 1981 in one city in South Carolina in 1981. But the wide American release of Porky's was 1982. So that's the kind of hairs we're splitting here. Do we include the original South Carolina one city release from 1981 or do we do the wide release from 1982? It's so, ah. It is. As a result, there are many mistakes that are made or many things that are mentioned at a certain point, and it really does end up after a while feeling like I am just pulling boners nonstop. So what I think we may actually do is start saving up the films that we miss. And then now that we're doing special episodes for Patreon subscribers, I think a really great one that we can do from time to time would be just a We Pulled a Boner special, where we just go back and catch up on some films that that we rolled right through the first time. Also, if you are a fan of 80s all over, I hope that you are a Patreon subscriber at this point. And if you're not, let me tell you why you should be. Patreon is a chance for you to pledge a certain amount of money each month to the podcast. That money then goes to Scott and myself to keep this thing going and to rent movies and to pay for whatever we need to do for the show. Patreon supporters who come in at an Eddie Deason level or higher will now get full access to all of our bonus audio. That's $5 a month. Wow. So far, we put out a special hour-long interview with Nancy Allen. 
I'm about to put one out with Leah Thompson that we recorded last week. That's great. And Scott, who else do we have coming up? Pretty soon we'll be interviewing the lovely Miss Amanda Wiss from Nightmare on Elm Street and Better Off Dead and many, many quality 80s movies. The fantastic character actors Bill Sadler and Xander Berkeley, and the fantastic screenwriter Stephen D'Souza, who once wrote a little film called Die Hard. So far, the first two that we did, I really, really enjoyed the conversations. And what I thought were great about them is how game Nancy Allen and Leah Thompson both were for talking about everything. There was nothing that felt like it was off limits with them. And I think they're really fun conversations with these actors. This is what sticks out in my mind about the wildlife. Um, they cut my boobs out of it. I, they made me take my shirt off in that movie in a scene with Hart Bachner. We made the scene really, really sexy, even though it was stupid. It was like, I think it was written on the script, like, her boobs pop out like donuts. <laughs> oh. So I was like, this sucks. And um, Hart Bachner was my neighbor. He lived literally next door to me. We were like, if we have to do this stupid scene, let's make it sexy. So we did. During the preview of the movie, I was sitting next to my boyfriend, Dennis Quaid, and uh, Sean Penn, whose brother was in the movie. We got there and the whole audience was like, <laughs> and they got to that scene and it was dead silence. You could hear a pin drop. The scene just stopped the movie from its yuck, yuck, yuckness. And uh, they cut it out. They cut my boobs out of a teen exploitation movie, which was a great, great victory of mine. <laughs> <laughs> We're also going to start doing full length audio commentaries for films. Now, if you come in at the Dabney Coleman level, which is $10... Dabney Coleman is first rate. You'll also get access to the behind-the-scenes glimpses of the 80s all-over books that we're working on. If you pledge to become a Ty Webb-level supporter at $15 a month, you may even join us on the air for a special episode in the future. Stop thinking. Let things happen. And be the ball. So please, guys, take a look at the Patreon page, consider it, sign up, and for those of you who already have, thank you so much, and we hope that you feel like the bonus content is worth it. And, Drew, we do have a pretty fun month. We do. And there are so many little films up front, like Bloody Birthday. Bloody Birthday. The overwhelming horror. Bloody Birthday. It is a night that no one will survive. Drew, There's something I, about this stupid, cheap little movie that I have to admit, I kind of like. It's a little dopey, and it's really cheap, but it's kind of fun about it. It's about three homicidal children. That's it. <laughs> yeah, it's just killer kids. That's All it. right. It, it. There's some cursory explanation as to why they might be evil. doesn't matter. These three kids, two little boys and a little girl, are gleefully, blissfully evil. It's trash, but man, I, I did have fun for most of it. It is like, it's like a puppy. It just wants to please you. It's like, look, kids killing people and they're shitty kids. Yay. And that's all it is. I'll say this. I respect a movie like Bloody Birthday that at least has fun with what it is, as opposed to this next one, The Last Chase. Blow that jerk's card. The Last Chase. Bloody Birthday is a genre masterpiece compared to The Last Chase, which sounds like a lot of fun on paper. Oh, God, no. It's so bad. Right. You'd be like, oh, wait, Burgess Meredith and Lee Majors in a futuristic sci-fi story about former racer takes the last car in the cross-country chase from the authorities. It's mild max. Here's the thing. I am a real sucker for Chris Makepeace. I will watch almost any movie from the 80s that has Chris Makepeace in it because I'm hoping I'll get a Chris Makepeace performance I didn't know about. 
he can't do anything to wake this film up. I actually want to take the opportunity here to say good things about somebody who I think I've been a little unkind to so far on the podcast. I will say that Hard Country might be my favorite Jan Michael Vincent performance. You know, I about had enough you crawl over my back for one day. Or shit. It's one of these movies directed by a guy who made 400 TV films and one theatrical feature, and this is it. It's better than Urban Cowboy. It's young Jan Michael Vincent and young Kim Basinger, and it's the two of them basically trying to get out of Texas to build a new life for themselves, and they're fairly blue-collar kids who are stuck in shitty jobs. And what I liked about it was it's more honest than Urban Cowboy. It doesn't feel like it's slumming. It actually feels like it's about these people and not kind of looking down on them, which I think a lot of these early 80s hick films did. I kind of liked Hard Country. I think it's okay. It's- I was not able to track that one down. I'm glad you liked it, though. That's good. I was afraid it would be like, I hadn't seen it, and you hated it. And that's not- Well, that's now you watch this next one, and I didn't watch it again, because I can live the rest of my oh life my without ever watching dude. Going Ape again. It's time for a film that straightforwardly confronts modern issues. Women's rights. Police brutality. Traffic congestion. Littering and bad diets. Going eight. Rated PG. I, I don't even know where to begin with this. Let's now plant our flag, Drew, as the movie podcast that is going to spend the most amount of time ever discussing Going Ape, starring Tony Danza, Danny DeVito, the wonderful Jessica Walter, and three. Dumb, stinky-ass orangutans. You know, there's something about this story shape that this film adheres to that's kind of like um, Brewster's Millions. And I'm not, I'm never a fan of it because I don't ever think it pays off well where somebody has to complete a task in order to win a giant chunk of money and they have to do it in a certain amount of time and there's comic mayhem. You know, I'd say the most famous version of this is it's a mad, 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 mad world. Brewster's Millions does this. Going Ape is an example of this. I think you even tweeted a picture of one last night when you were talking about the sex comedy stuff called Preppies, where like they have to do something by a certain amount of time in order to get $50 million. Easiest premise in the world. Hey, Drew, if you can eat 10 bicycles in a day, you'll win $10 million. Now, the audience automatically wants to know, hey, is the idiot going to eat 10 bicycles? I'd like, I'm curious. So it's, isn't it amazing though how often they drop the ball on it and they can't figure out anything interesting to do with that premise? So Tony Danza. Uh, is is given a, a, a will in which it's t- said that he'll he'll inherit a big chunk of money if he babysits his uh, late uncle's uh, three orangutans. Did we Got- just discover orangutans in like 1978? Were they n- did they not exist before that? Because it seems like in movies, cre- these creatures are amazing. Look at these things. How have we never put orangutans on film before? We really did. We lost our goddamn minds for them for about four years. And then everybody woke up and was like, no, that's not interesting. And you flash I, forward to several years later and I'm, I'm, I'm watching Friends and I see Joey Tribbiani, who reminds me a little bit of the young Tony Danza. And then he tries to make a movie and it also has primates in it. Sitcom stars stay away from movies with primates. Okay, so I, not only were we the podcast that has taken the most time to ever talk about Going Ape, but we're the only podcaster where you will ever hear someone segue from Going Ape to Fellini's City of Women. Uh, this is an essential Fellini. It's okay. It's interesting. Like many of Fellini's films, there's a series of fantasies, and it is 
uh, very much about him working through some of his own feelings. There's a man who tries to seduce a woman uh, on a train at the beginning, and then he sent through a number of different frustrating fantasies that are supposed to give him a perspective on how men present themselves to women. And I certainly think, especially right now, this is a film that if it really hit the target, this would be a movie that we continue to talk about and we'd look at. I feel like he's a very old world European man and his attitudes about women are very old world European. And so I'm not, I don't, I don't think the film really nails what it's trying to do, which is, I, I think he still misses the target to some degree, but he's Fellini. This is his he's perhaps protesting a bit too much. I think that kind of thing. This was my intro to Fellini. And for years I thought, Oh, I don't, I just don't get this guy. He's weird and I don't get it. It's odd sexuality. Took me a while to be brought back to the beauty of Fellini. It's a strange one to start with because this is like him trying to open himself up to different ideas of what women are, but he's still working through his own attitude. So it's a weird entrance point film for him, no matter what. Not one of my favorites of his. I, I would not necessarily say this is one that you have to see or track down unless you really want to see his whole body of work. Okay, and now we switch gears 1,000%, if that's a thing, which it isn't, to a almost three-hour war film that I had never seen prior to a couple of nights ago, directed by a man whose name is near and dear to the hearts of horror fans everywhere because he was the producer of the Halloween series, and this film is Mustafa Akkad's Lion of the Desert. I will not have a handful of Bedouins stop the progress of 40 million Anthony Quinn and Oliver Reed star in Lion of the Desert, a battle for power. They take this land by day, but by God, we take it back by night. A battle for glory. Blast A battle for survival. We will never surrender. We win or we die. Lion of the Desert, rated PG. Yeah, I didn't even know he'd ever directed. And certainly this was, uh, in terms of my, my encounter with it, my first time seeing it, didn't know what it was. I'm fascinated by why this film even exists. It should be called Rod Steiger as Mussolini because that would get people to watch this movie. Dude, and between Rod Steiger as Mussolini and Oliver Reed as uh, Rodolfo Graziani, there is nothing subtle about this movie. And uh, you know what? I hate to say it, but they're both relatively restrained. (laughs) Like you think Steiger as Mussolini, you think of the Tasmanian devil on crack. He's actually a little bit less manic than you would expect. And Oliver Reed is quite good in this movie. It's a weird film, politically speaking, because if you're Libyan, then you know the name Omar Mukhtar. But if you're not Libyan, you probably don't. I didn't. And I had to go read about him. You do, however, probably know the name Muammar Gaddafi. And Gaddafi actually produced this film, paid for it, because he idolized Omar Mukhtar. And so... This is a film about Mukhtar that stars a lot of white dudes. Nick Mukhtar as played by Anthony Quinn. Yeah, uh, which, again, <laughs> wild. And the idea that uh, Mustafa Akkad directed this, it's pretty big. It's a gigantic movie in terms of scale. Big budget, serious production value. Absolutely. Politically speaking, it's kind of a nightmare attempt at mythmaking because of who they're mythmaking. About. Right. So- and I realize that not only do I not know virtually anything about this conflict, but almost everything I do know has come from films. So I thought, all right, I'm just trying to watch it as either a war drama or as an escapist adventure film. It's too long, but I kind of dug it. (laughs) I think it's a pretty interesting movie. And I'm fascinated by movies that are produced by lunatics, like whether it's this or whether it was Inchon or whether it was the films that were produced by uh, Kim Jong-un. 
that is mind boggling to me when these guys who of a very particular political stripe get into filmmaking because it is uncommon. And I certainly think Gaddafi as a producer of this is one of the things that makes it fascinating because it, it is certainly near and dear to his heart. These uh, these next two films we're going to do would make a really great double feature. I think you've seen at least one of these, Scott. If you want to see a, a movie that is very authentic about what punk was like and what it felt like, especially in England, you're going to want to track down Breaking Glass. When the time comes, you will know the day the music dies and the new wave crashes and the glass shatters. In the beginning she will pick up the pieces and make them hers. Her voice, her time is now. Breaking glass, the experience is shattering. This is a movie where Brian Gibson did double duty as writer-director. It's very effective, um, and I think it gets right to the heart of what people look for in music, what you look for as a performer, what you look for as a fan. Um, Hazel O'Connor gives an amazing performance in it, and if you are a fan of Jonathan Price like I am, absolutely unbelievable in this, and it's just in a couple of scenes, but he kills. The other end of this is... Christiana F., the image of a generation... Discos at 11, alcohol at 12, heroin at 13, and at 14, a schoolgirl by day, a prostitute at night. Christiana F., the true story of a girl who went to hell and back. You want to talk about a brutal movie. Uli Edel, the director of this, it is a film about drug use in West Berlin in the 70s. It is about heroin. It is about children. It doesn't glamorize the high. It's not train spotting. It doesn't get into the fun end of it. This is simply ugly and scabrous, and it makes really, really effective use of David Bowie as an icon. And especially, and I think because of what he was in, in Berlin and what his relationship was to Berlin as a, as an artist, it, it's a fascinating use of him. And then, man, I don't know what to make of this next one. I, I, I think you and I come at this from very different places. I am, because my parents grew up in Memphis, I was steeped in Elvis from childhood. When I look at This is Elvis, this is a particular corner of the larger, weird tapestry of Elvis. The sound he created and performed. Rare personal films never before seen by the public. Intimate memories and reflections in his own words. Millions of people know me as a star, but few really know who I am. This is Elvis. The private moments, the public triumphs, the epic biography of the man behind the legend. This is Elvis. Uh, my grandmother was actually an anesthesiologist at Memphis Baptist Hospital. So when Elvis died, he was brought into their hospital. And I remember getting the call from her hysterical before it was on the news because she was losing her mind that they just brought Elvis in dead. And it was like my parents melted down. It was a big deal for them. So, yeah, I, I was raised on this stuff. And this is Elvis was a, a documentary that certainly was around, I think, when it came out and that I saw. There's a lot of like um, recreations. And in the early part of it, they kind of they kind of are telling his story. And that stuff to me feels like it's so mythologized and it's so kind of phony. 
I would say if you like this, I would really recommend Elvis. That's the way it is, um, which I think is just a better concert film. Look, there's real value in, in some of the stuff that's in here. And clearly it's most interesting as a reaction to his legend immediately on the heels of his death. This is the beginning of how the estate then tried to take control of that story and really recast him. You know, there's there's stuff about Elvis that will always be and should be controversial. You know, when he met Priscilla, how old she was, how long they were together. There's some really weird stuff in there. But again, this is the beginning of them really taking control of the myth and recasting him a certain way. And it's fascinating for that. Like, if you want to see what the estate wanted you to believe Elvis was in 1981, this is it. Yeah, yeah. I found it fascinating. Don't know how completely honest it is, but Elvis fans, uh, I'm sure, have already seen it long before I have. So uh, that brings us to a really interesting film. Atlantic City. It will change every idea you ever had about winning and losing. Teach me stuff. Susan Sarandon. Like what? She has the ambition. What you know? Bert Lancaster has the experience. What are you Alone, they might not make it. Together, they might not survive. A room for me and my mother. Glad to see you're born again. Bert Lancaster. Anyone ever take care of you like I did? If you're safe. Susan Sarandon. Atlantic City. For everyone who's ever needed one more chance. When they eventually start the reassessment of Louis Maul's whole career, and I, I think there's a conversation to be had about him as a filmmaker, the final assessment is going to be Louis Maul's kind of a creep. I don't think you can make Pretty Baby and not be somewhat of a creep. And it's in a lot of his films. There's also, when we talk about myth-making from your own personal history, Louis Maul used his life story in ways that certainly were self-aggrandizing. So I'm not crazy about a lot of his work that came out of him writing it and him directing it as well. I'm really fascinated by the moments when he took a good script and then just brought his acumen as a director to it. And I think one of the best examples of that is this film. It was a huge Oscar film that year, like nominated for director and screenplay and actor and actress. And and it's one of these films where it's kind of an accident that it is what it is. Louis Moe was going to make something else entirely. And then the financing kind of fell apart and he was stuck. I, I want to make a film and I'm here. I'm in America. And he was at the time dating Susan Sarandon. And she was the one that put him together with the playwright, John Guare. And I think John Guare is an amazing writer. And the script that they gave him is this really loose, shaggy dog story about a guy who is a never was. He was never the gangster that he likes to portray himself as. But he he tells these stories and he kind of moves himself to the center of it. And and he talks about the old days and the old days are not really what he says they were. And it's Burt Lancaster as this character. And he spends a lot of time watching this woman who lives across from him. And she is the, the face of new Atlantic City. She is the person who's coming in. She wants to be a dealer. She works at an oyster bar. So every night she has to, like, use lemons to try and get the smell of the oysters off of her. She's trying to become a blackjack dealer and build a better life for herself. Susan Sarandon represents this thing that he'll never have again, this youth that's gone and everything. So when he gets that opportunity to live out that dream, it's really it's both sad and pathetic and kind of 
heartbreaking. There's a moment in the film where it's starting. To, he's starting to really buy into it. And he's starting to believe it and everything. And then there's a physical altercation, and he utterly fails. And to watch Burt Lancaster, who is such an icon of masculinity and such a big oak tree of a guy anyway, to watch him get emasculated and to see how thorough it is. It's it's a really beautiful moment, and I get why the acting in this movie in particular was nominated that year and why it was in the conversation, because everybody is working at a really high level, whether it's Randon or Robert Joy, the scumbag who plays her husband. Yeah, he's he's a good underrated character actor. And what I what I like about uh, Atlantic City, I, I grew up going to Atlantic City a lot, and I, so I know the exteriors that are in this film very well. And, and I was taken by how... Uh, Louis Mal would have the characters in front of these monolithic backdrops, either a boarding home that's kind of stately and beautiful, but clearly in a state of disrepair and will probably be gone in two or three years, or a brand new glitzy but clearly hollow looking giant casino. You juxtapose that with the beautiful Atlantic Ocean right across the street. It's just a movie that really has a really interesting time and place to it. I was not what I was expecting, but I really dug Atlantic City. And here's the thing, man. I saw this at a certain age, and I, and I now have an apology to make to somebody. You know what it's like. You see certain movies at a certain age, and you imprint on them certain ways. And this movie, like I said, Sarandon plays somebody who works at this oyster bar. So every night she uses the lemons to get the smell off of her. And it's played as a very sensual, very sexual thing that Burt Lancaster watches from across the way, where she strips to the waist every night, and it's memorable. There's it's no a, doubt yeah, about it's it. It's erotic, and it's a touching moment, too. Uh, and it pay, it pays off in a really fascinating way later on. There's a real beauty to the way that that eventually comes back around, and you realize, and when he tells her that he's been watching her, what that what that does to the characters. So it's a great part of this movie. I am sure that over the course of her career, she has learned to hate the mention of lemons. And I know this directly because I made that mistake. It was it was one of those dumb situations where I had an opportunity to go talk to her for Jeff, who lives at home, the, uh, the Duplass Brothers movie. And because the Duplass Brothers like me and I like the movie and I saw it early, they kind of went out of the way to say, make sure Drew gets extra time with everybody. So it was all on video and I had the boys with me. And we went to go into the room to interview Susan Sarandon. And so we walk in and she sees the boys and she's like, hi, fellas. And as they go to walk into the other room to sit down, Toshi turns around and comes back out. and He does a double take and looks at her and he says, excuse me, are you Speed Racers, mom? And she lights up and she's like, I am Speed Racers, mom. And he's happy. She's happy. Everything's great. I should have just taken that moment and started the interview. And instead, he walks into the room, sits down. And I said, you know, I think it's generational. Guys just love you, Susan. And I, I think, you know, for me, I was very young when I saw Atlantic City and The Hunger. And so I've grown up with a love of lemons. Wow. And the look on her face when I said that. And dude, I heard it come out of my mouth and I thought, <laughs> okay, here's the joke that I'm making. And then I saw it happen. And man, if I could have pulled it, reached out and pulled it back in. She was so disappointed with me. So disappointed. And I felt especially bad. My kid just walked in the other room and I make that joke. If I could say anything, fellas, it's A, I'm sorry, Susan Sarandon. And B, if you ever interview her, be better than I was. Our next film comes from a brilliant, celebrated, award-winning, really respected director. His name is Oliver Stone. And the movie stars Michael Caine. This movie must be great. 
Tell us about it. No, no, it, it's not great. This is his second, technically his third, although nobody's ever seen the first one, his second horror film. And thank God his last horror film, because this is not something Oliver Stone demonstrated an aptitude for with the hand. You think I've done something wrong, don't you? Mm-hmm. Terror he could not forget. You think there's something in there, don't you? Torment. He could not bear. You want to see? Truth he would not face. Hey! Take a look! Orion Pictures presents Michael Caine in The Hand. Okay, let's break this down real simple. It's the story of an unhappy cartoonist with a soon-to-be-estranged wife who loses his hand in a car accident. The hand yeah. disappears, and then slowly but surely, the people who cross this angry cartoonist end up, guess what? It rhymes with bread. There's a weird strain of misogyny that runs through this movie, and it is tacky. Isn't it? And it's weird because Stone has, look, Stone has issues with women, and he has issues with how he writes them. I think there are moments he has done it very well. I think there are moments he's done it incredibly poorly Scarface and the entire uh, Michelle Pfeiffer character would be the bad end of that pool. But it's clear that especially at this point in the early eighties, late seventies, he was working through some shit and he came back with some anger. And I think there is an anger that is simmering underneath this movie that is in the Michael Caine character that I think is genuine. I think it's a very real thing that Oliver Stone was feeling, which is that notion that, Women, and I think the wife in this movie stands in for a lot of women, but I think the idea that women were now starting to explore self-actualization and they were having these these lives away from their husbands. Michael Caine's character has a real simmering resentment of what's going on with his wife, and his wife really doesn't care. She is on her own journey, and that's really what leads to the estrangement between them. And that anger, I feel like, is very strange and it's not earned by the movie and i feel like it's a real thing stone brought in so i'm fascinated watching it i don't think it works as a movie no, though i don't think he ever makes the hand work as an no, externalization it's like, it's like you're like you're saying subtextually not only is it simplistic but it's distasteful uh the, yeah. the clear implication is that all these horrible things that are going wrong with him are because he's anchored to a horrible woman or a, a domineering, demanding woman who wants her own life and her own freedom and her own exploration. And, and how, well, just all it can. I, I think you can just look at the moment where he loses the hand and you actually see like he's sitting in the passenger seat in his car. He's not driving in his marriage and he's got his hand out the window when it gets cut off. And his wife is the reason that it happens. And I think Stone stages so much of this so so pointedly that it's hard not to read it that way. But again, I don't think he earns No, it. the subtext is laughable. And so put that aside. Does it work as a horror movie or a thriller? No, because A, you're already dealing with something that even if, I, if it was made in 1940, it would be old hat. My kids were telling me that in one of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies, they actually have a, a thing where it's a horror movie about a foot that's stalking people. And they were laughing about it in the car today because they were laughing at the idea of a hand. They thought it was just as silly. And like he te- he kind of tries to get into the whole is a disembodied hand actually killing people or is Michael Caine actually killing them? And that that's deep down what he wants to do. And he's blaming the hand. Right, and the ambiguity is not sold no. by the film. And it's not scary. I just wish it was worse because then it would be better. 
No, no, you're exactly right. It's it's boring bad. And it's that kind of miscalculated, I know what you think you're saying. I don't think you said any of what you think it's you're so, actually saying. Like, but And it's just so perfunctory. It's, it, I mean, forget that it's dumb. Forget the dumb pl- aspect of it, because horror fans are fine with dumb if it's good. But what I will say, and I made a quick list of things in this film that are good, and I think you'll agree with most of them. Number one, a young Bruce McGill. And I, I love Bruce McGill in pretty much everything. I think he never got his due. Also, relatively playful score by young James Horner, a, an actress I don't know much about, Annie McEnroe. She adds a real energy to the movie when she shows up. Yeah, there's moments in this where you can see that Oliver is a filmmaker. Like, he's not a hack. He's not phoning it in. He's really trying. My frustration with the movie is that I feel like it's very early and I don't think he really had all of his skills down, but it's clearly a guy who, I mean, he's got some shit to say. Yeah. The last thing I wrote down, which is not exactly a good thing, but it is a fascinating thing. The hand, the effects from the hand are not that great. And yet they were co-created, the special effects by Stan Winston and Carlo Rambaldi. I know. I know. That's a lot of firepower for a hand. Right. I mean, if you hear Stan Winston and Carlo Rambaldi design this hand... I want that hand to do fucking Busby Berkeley numbers. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not that. That's a film that I, I it wants to work better. It should work better. It just doesn't. This next film, I think I'm going to go ahead and call it. This is a trashter piece. I fucking love Ms. 45. Every day on every street, in every city, women are insulted. Abused. Threatened. Anna, what's the matter? What's the matter with you? It seems like films like I Spit on Your Grave kind of enjoy the suffering of the female characters. To me, I didn't get that from Miss 45. It's 100% on her side. And more than that, they spend a long time just letting you know how shitty it is to be a woman. There is a chunk of this movie up front that is literally just, man, dude, suck. Right? If the, the young men's rights types watch this movie, they would be livid. Because they'd be like, what are you trying to say? That every man in the world is a is a leering scumbag and da 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 No, but that's mu- that must be how it feels. It is such a good movie at putting you in her shoes. Her perspective is this movie, and you feel like her in this movie. I think it's Abel Farrar's best movie by a country mile. I don't think anything else even comes close. I don't know. I'm a huge Abel Farrar fan. I love King of New York. I love Driller Killer. I like Abel. I think Abel is a guy who, especially as he started smelling his own farts later in his career, I think he lost his mind. And I worked with Abel a little bit, and he's crazy. Oh, I've heard that as well, yeah. I think when he made this movie, this is a movie that to me walks that fine line between, and the reason I call it a trash to piece, I think it is genuinely an exploitation film. Oh, it is, but it's an exploitation film that says, oh, I can sell the movie on these moments, but once you're in, there's going to be more meat to it than you think. It is a movie that ultimately builds to a massacre where she's dressed as a nun and she's blowing people away. It's not a subtle film, nor is it a particularly low-key film, but man, do I love the way it builds, and I think there's something about her. She is such a strange, bruised little thing. Zoe Lund, and what a performance. She's basically silent throughout the movie, 
and there is a sense that there's something developmentally off about her. And so people are kind of taking care of her and they try to be a little nice to her, but you see how like guys take advantage of her. The guy that she works for is constantly pushing that, that what is nice and what is scumbaggy. And just watching it as a guy, I'm like, good God, I couldn't take 10 fucking minutes of this stuff. It gets you to the point that when she finally breaks, not only do you understand why she breaks, but you get why she feels like there's no way out of it. Why she can't then just fix it. I really, I love the way the film unfolds. Beautifully shot, the colorful. Yeah, it's a dream. Like, it feels like a dream, and you're stuck in it, and that is the thing that I love most about it. It has a definite sense of mood and style, and it is very POV-based. The idea that he makes you feel what she feels over the course of the film as well as he does is mind-boggling me, because it's able. Like, he's not a guy who is necessarily the most empathetic towards outside of him, Yet, I think in this movie, he does such a great job of putting you into someone's shoes. It's it's a great, great exploitation film. I think it's great that Drafthouse put it back out and kind of gave it a sense of class in the re-release. But it is definitely a film that holds up. And that is, if you are curious about what New York, really sleazy New York, felt like exactly in the early 80s, Miss 45 is one of the best records of it you'll ever yeah, see. It, it's a fascinating movie. Uh, wouldn't necessarily call it fun. It feels like a lot of people saw Death Wish and thought, I can do that dumber and make some money. Death Wish inspired some filmmakers to go, hmm, mightn't it be more interesting to, you know, maybe bring her perspective, the female perspective into this story? And that's how I take the film. And I think it's very interesting. I like it a lot. And this next one is one of the strangest films in this director's filmography. Scott, can you tell me about the first time you either heard of or saw George Romero's Night Riders? Ready to brave any challenge. Night Riders. The knight is a fighting machine, disciplined in mind and heart, and noble to the death. Night Riders. Action. Adventure. Romance. Heraldry. Pageantry. And magic. Magic got to do with the soul, man. Only the soul got destiny. Night Riders, they ride for the crown, they fight for honor. That kid thinks I'm evil Knievel. That kid thinks you're William the Knight. You're his hero. I'm not trying to be a hero! I'm fighting the dragon! Throw down the gauntlet, take up the challenge, a new age begins. Romance and adventure live. Riders, the legend is born. I had a handful of friends who, when I would grab stuff from the video store, they would come over and watch it. And if I were to say, oh, it's the vampire movie from the guy who did Dawn of the Dead, they would say, all right. And I don't know if Martin really went over with a bunch of 14 year olds, but I can tell you right now, Knight Rider sure as fuck didn't. <laughs> oh, it's medieval stuff with motorcycles and like. Man, I wanted to like this, too. This is one of those movies where I saw the poster and I'm like, okay, that's fucking bananas. I don't get it. It's not plot aggressive. It is certainly not a film that, that wants to get Nor somewhere. Nor is it character based, which is interesting. 
<laughs> it is about a traveling events happen and people are in it. Tra- traveling yet. Renaissance fair that does jousts on motorcycles, which I will admit is fairly novel for about 15 minutes. It it really is. Young Ed Harris with hair, a young Tom Savini acting better than he you might expect. Not a bad actor, Tom Savini. I just saw him the other day with the kids in Perks of Being a Wallflower. I love that he's an actor in oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah, totally. God. It's great when he shows up in Pittsburgh movies. You're like, hey, especially when they're not horror films. That's that's even better. They run afoul of some dirty cops who want to extort some money from them. And then they these dirty cops arrest one of the renaissancers for drugs <laughs> that apparently he didn't have. They, I, I believe it's called framing. And then it seems to be like kind of like a mid-70s anti-authoritarian walking tall, rah, we'll fight the machine, rah, rah. No, no offense to you. I just yawned twice while you were describing it. And a lot of it is about the power struggles within the, the Renaissance fair group. Like, But Knight Riders is a film that really could use Clint Eastwood and an orangutan. <laughs> and it's proof that George Romero... Not necessarily suited to every kind of storytelling. This was one of those where you hit a brick wall with him. It's almost like George Romero was driving across Pittsburgh one day and came across this motorcycle-based Renaissance fair. And and, and before he even pulled the car over, he's like, I'm going to make a movie with these guys and I'm going to do an easy rider with these guys. Not every idea is a good idea. Oh, boy. If you can make it past an hour of this movie, and I worship at the altar of George Romero, I would not disrespect this man. Night Riders is just not good. <laughs> this next movie is one that I think I saw an insane number of times, and I have deep love in my heart for Nighthawks. Amor Reinhardt, international terrorist. Deep De Silva, New York City cop. One man can bring the world to its knees, and only one man can stop him. Universal Pictures presents Sylvester Stallone in Nighthawks. Nighthawks, rated R, now playing at a theater near you. This was on a six-hour VHS tape that we had with The Road Warrior and Eye of the Needle. I, I would watch Road Warrior, and then I'd watch this, and then I'd never watch Eye of the Needle. I would just watch those two over and over on a loop. I love that it felt crazy and grown up, and that Rocky was a cop, and Lando was a cop. And I love that the ball chick from Star Trek and the bionic woman were in it. I Man, there was nothing I didn't like about this movie when it came out. There's a lot I didn't pick up on as a kid, though. When I went back to watch it again, I didn't get that at, at the beginning of the film, Stallone is in disguise as a woman and his whole first chase and fight, he's in a dress and that his whole job at the beginning is decoy. Didn't get it. I, I don't think I ever connected that. So to me, the ending of the film was this mind blowing twist. But when you watch it now, they tell you where they're going from the very beginning. Did you see this film first or Terror in the Isles first? Because for some reason, I guess because it's universal and it was hot at the time, it was just coming out. Terror in the Isles is mostly horror clips, but yet there are numerous clips of Nighthawks in Terror in the Isles. And I'm sure you dug this up on your research as well, Drew. Our listeners will enjoy knowing this. It began its life as a draft for French Connection 3. Oh, I didn't know that. I love that Rucker Hauer plays the opening 20 minutes of the film under prosthetics so that when he gets plastic surgery at a certain point, the end result is he looks like Rucker Hauer. 
I didn't really get how much work they did on him at the beginning until I saw it again. And it's not him. There's a really interesting thing they do to him for that first 15, 20 minutes. It's well shot. It's got a lot of action. And like we said, it's got a nice edge to it. One of the weird things about it is I don't know who directed it. There's a lot of debate about that because Gary Nelson directed it like he was on a big chunk of this thing and then got replaced. And you look at Gary Nelson's career and he's like he directed like Freaky Friday and the Black Hole. You look at Bruce Malmuth's career and I mean, he did like Hard to Kill and, and The Man Who Wasn't There. I don't think he got anywhere near a film this good again. Yeah, Nighthawks is good. I bet you if you go around to old, old people like us, you'll find a lot of people who dig Nighthawks. I love the disco stuff. I love the chase, the, fo- the foot chase, the subway chase with Wolfgar, all the way up to the, the ending of it where he st- gets Billy D. Williams with a knife. That is fucking great. And I love that Billy D. Williams in this. He is filthy. Every line out of his mouth is dirty. I love that Keith Emerson scores like this, this prog rock version of what Lalo Schifrin did. I think the Roosevelt Island Skycar sequence is an all-timer. I think Joe Spinell is really good in it. I love that Joe Spinell looks like a half-melted candle. He always does. The guy is like, you shoot him normally, it still looks like a fisheye lens. It's freaky. I think it is simultaneously the best ending ever and the most ridiculous ending ever, and that's why it's great. It is ridiculous, and yet you have to applaud the, the way they go for it. And I love that as soon as it's over, it's over like this movie and it's one of those movies where the last thing happens and then somebody walks outside sits down and the closing credits roll there's no screwing around drew when did you first see caveman a toot will be the leader of the stone age he will inspire the men and zug zug the women he will protect them from all the beasts of the earth Star, Barbara Bach, Caveman, rated PG. Uh, so broad, it's ridiculous and really, really base in a lot of ways. But I'll say this: I really like the work that Jim Danforth does. That the, the oh, stop motion, oh, it's charming. It's very likable. All the the dinosaurs are very cool. And there is something really funny about Ringo Starr as the put upon beta male in this like everybody every other caveman is the giant john matusak caveman type and even dennis quaid is more macho than ringo star and i there is something kind of charming about him in this it's not great but i will say that carl gottlieb stages everything with the sense that he knows yeah it's all. oh no no this movie knows how i mean it, it is clearly going for like the airplane level of it, it's not nearly as funny as airplane, but it's going for the unapologetic, super broad five jokes every 30 seconds. And if you chuckle at a couple of them, that's fine with us. And I, I have to call caveman to some degree a success. You, you can't judge a willfully silly movie for being willfully silly. I think it wears out its welcomes. It wears out its welcome a little bit, but it has a great gag near when, when Dennis Quaid falls in a river and he, climbs out of the river and all of a sudden he's living in the ice age and he starts peeing icicles. <laughs> there Why is, is that so funny? Dennis Quaid, you know, so far, if we look at what we've touched on with him, 
Dennis Quaid was having a really weird early career. Yeah, he must have gone to bed at night thinking, am I ever going to get to be in a good movie? I just signed on for this caveman comedy. This could do it. And after this, my agent has me reading for a Jaws sequel. <laughs> um, all right, so let's move on to this next one, which this may be the discovery of the week for me, because I had no idea this even existed. This is a strange movie that I remember the title very clearly because I think it must have played on ABC Movie of the Week seven or eight times. I am uh, I'm kind of charmed by it, and I, I think it's one of those movies that, um, again, I knew the title like you did, but I had no idea what it was, and I think that title may have kept people away from seeing Cattle Annie and Little Britches. First thing I noticed about Cattle Annie and Little Britches, okay, first off, the title characters are both women, and yep. those women are played by Amanda Plummer and Diane Lane. Early Diane Lane, but yeah, this was Amanda Plummer's debut, and I am blown away that I had never seen it because holy shit. I, I don't want to get on a soapbox about this, but the movie is called Cattle Annie and Little Britches, and the first three people credited above the title are Burt Lancaster, John Savage, and Rod Steiger. So imagine that you're an actress who gets to lead a film, two actresses who get to lead a film, you're a title character. And now you're fourth and fifth build. I'm sorry, but that's weak. <laughs> and it's based on a book by Robert Ward, who also covered the script. And it's directed by a guy named Lamont Johnson, who made one truly great movie called The Last American Hero with Jeff Bridges. It's a stock car racing movie. He also made a really fucked up movie called Lipstick. That's a rape revenge movie with Margot Hemingway. And that is horrible. This is set right at the end of the Old West, at the age of the Old West, and outlaws are wearing out their welcome. And And the, the movie is about Catalani, who is Amanda Plummer's character, who is infatuated with the sort of romantic notion of outlaws. So when a outlaw gang rides into town, led by Burt Lancaster and John Savage, she wants to sign up and become an outlaw with them. And so it's basically her telling them what she thinks they are and asking them to be those outlaws again so that she and her friend can go with them and be those, those outlaws too. So there's a sense like they were never really those people. She's in love with this romanticized version, seeing that this came out the same month as Atlantic City and Burt Lancaster. And this is a pretty radically different take on the aging. This is the guy that was a real outlaw and is just tired and just really and can't believe anybody thinks it's romantic. Yeah, or interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting movie because I always assumed Based on the title, Catalan, like these two wacky broads are going to tame the West, but it's not, it's that, that's not what it is. I mean, there is some light, there's some good light material and some quippy stuff, but it's, it's a weird mix. I'll say this. Amanda Plummer's a pistol. Oh, wow. She's great. She's so good. And I didn't know. And I think Diane Lane is really wonderful with her, but it's, it's Plummer's movie. Plummer is really the one that comes out swinging. It's not a film that's easily available. It's not a film that's in, in ready circulation right now, but it is a film that is better than the title and the reputation necessarily indicate. And I really, I would hope that people get a chance to see it again. It should be in circulation, if for no other reason than so that people can see where Amanda Plummer began, because my God, she came out sweet. Yeah, it's, it's a sweet movie. Uh, and then we go from one sweet movie about women to another sweet movie about women turning into werewolves. <laughs> Joe Dante's, if it was released any other year but 1981, it would be the best werewolf movie of the year, The Howling. All your nightmares are about to be transformed into one single, inescapable fear. Tonight I'm going to show you something. I mean, if you believe... 
The Howling. Beyond anything human. Rated R. I love American Werewolf in London, but this is the one that scared me. American Werewolf in London, I find more just interesting, and I love the characters, and I love hanging out with Jack and David. and I love The Howling as well, but American Werewolf in London, just the howl in the distance scared me. The howling, I thought, was more fun. The opening theater scene in this, yeah. where D. Wallace has the flashback to whatever happened with Eddie in that yeah, booth. Yeah, yeah, That stuff is grown-up scary. Knowing that she's, you know, on the run or or haunted by a sexual assault. Maybe that's why it bothered me so much, because it felt dirtier and scarier and weirder and crazier. The Howling is uh, one of Joe Dante's crown jewels. It's about a, a newscaster who, uh, as we mentioned, is... is uh, on the men's from a horrible event. If you've ever seen The Howling or more specifically Philip Kaufman's brilliant Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you might wonder what is all this touchy-feely EST and self-help group? It's the brood as well. It's it's that that era of of sort of this there was a lot of psychology speak and people went to these seminars for how to improve yourself and get in touch with your inner person like there was such a push towards this kind of self-actualization in the late 70s early 80s and EST was a big one. And now that you know all that you get to know that that's exactly what this movie, this John Sale screenplay is lampooning. Oh, such a good sales script. And we talked about Alligator already. Like Alligator, like Battle Beyond the Stars, the reason this works is because sales took it seriously. And yet is smart enough to know how to tweak the genre, poke at things you recognize, and yet never not take it seriously. It's such a hard balance, and sales seem to do it effortlessly as a yeah, writer. If I uh, were able to uh, swing a magic wand and wake up tomorrow as a screenwriter, John Sales is who I would want to emulate. And I th- I throw Brother from Another Planet in there because I think it's it's of a continuum with them where it's so clear that he not only understood genre, but understood how to play with it in a way that didn't break it. It fits in perfectly with Joe Dante's sensibility, which is, hey, we're all in a room being scared together, and that's fun. I love when Dick Miller shows up in this. I love that it is a direct reference to to the character he used to play for uh, Corman. I love the way that stuff kind of pays off and it's the early version of it. So Dante hadn't sort of become locked into his fetishes yet. The Rob Bottin work in this film, the, the way the werewolf transformations were handled in this movie. I love how strange they are. I love that the werewolves are, are bigger and longer and they're bony and to me, these werewolves are really striking and scary, and it's strange that as the sequels were on, they didn't know what to do with oh, that design. dude, there are no Howling sequels. Well, it's like the Halloween sequels, where they never got the shape's face right again, because there is a weird thing that happens where you get an, a, a movie monster so right in the first film, and then you can never, ever get it right again, and you're making direct sequels, for God's sake. The, the final werewolf in the movie, the design of that one just kills me. I love it. It's not it's a very unique, not not a normal werewolf design, but I love it. I, I get exactly why they went with that design. I also well, think Robert Picardo in this genius Robert Picardo performance. And man, you don't recognize him. He's not Robert Picardo that you've ever seen in anything else in this movie. He's weird and upsetting. And Eddie Quist is one of those 80s monsters and and he needs to be for the to sell this the horror for you know like that's one of the clever things about what Dante and Sales do in the Howling is it casts a big shadow even before you know what it is. Quist is scary. 
look, I think a lot of times, you know, performances are incredibly important to why a movie becomes iconic. And this next film is a great example of that. There's so many things that went into John Borman's approach to this movie. But I think one of the things that for me has always stood out is there is a performance in this film that I find so strange and that stands apart so much from the rest of the movie that it's always been the thing I think of first. And that's Nicole Williamson's work as Merlin in John Borman's Excalibur. Orion Pictures presents John Borman's Excalibur. I shall find the man and give birth to a god. An empire born of legend and lust, where the only fear is the pain of love. I protest my innocence! Were I not king, I would make you pay with your life! Excalibur, rated R. Boy, do I have a history with this movie. As a kid, bored me to tears. It's got some action and some fun stuff, but it's mostly people talking, Okay. And uh, we went to see it at a drive-in. It was my mom, my dad, my my older sister, and I. And during the early sex scene, my mom kept turning around and, like, covering our eyes. My image has always stuck in my head. That's all I ever remember of Excalibur until, say, 10 or 12 years later when I saw it and I was enraptured by it. Excalibur might have taught me more about visual filmmaking. I love, I love every frame of how this film looks. And I do feel like John Borman labored over every frame of it. It is a beautifully made movie, but I'm I'm kind of with you. I think it's a little inert as drama. And for all the famous faces that flash past this, many of them kind of at the start of their careers, I don't think there's much of a pulse it's, to this. That's movie. it. It's got great moments, especially if you're into the Arthurian legend and you know these stories and you know these characters. There's moments where you're like, God, that's a beautiful moment. Or, oh, I love the way he captured that character or that castle. Or the way he interpreted something like his whole idea that he's going to go with the idea of Percival as the Grail Knight and all. That's a very distinct take on Arthurian legend that's not the conventional take, but it's there's a history that it draws on and you can m- understand why he made the argument. So like all those choices, I agree. Like I use the, the word episodic a lot and I, I hate to overuse words, but it really is like when a film has seven or eight or even 10 really interesting moments, but then there's just a lot of valley between those moments. And, and you, no matter how much you try to build up those moments that you love, you just can't help but realize, you know, my mind wanders a lot. I think it's a gorgeous failure in a lot of ways. I, I like it more than that. I like it more than that. I wish I did. And it's weird because I have the same experience in terms of my my memory of it. It was a very strong R to see in the theater at the age of 11. I know I saw the R version because I remember the conversations afterwards, but there was a PG cut of this that was done both for theatrical and for HBO. They would air the PG version during the day, and then at night, they would air Have the R-rated version. Have we mentioned that before in, in previous episodes? No, I don't think so. That, that, that it wasn't uncommon for, theater, for, for distributors. Paramount did it with uh, Saturday Night Fever, right? It was not uncommon for uh, distributors to recut films that were R and re-release them or at the same time as PG. And now the MPAA won't let you do that. They will not let you have two versions of a film in release because it's confusing. And as far as I can tell, the only version of Excalibur that still exists is the R-rated one. It's really weird because it is such an extreme movie. A lot of what is interesting about it is the R-rated elements of it. It's the, the violence. Or, I think I that's mean, part of the reason the film is so notable and so memorable is because these stories are told and retold, but this I might have been the first time in it for a contemporary audience that it was told in a adult sexual kind of way. This was for Borman. This was something that had, that had been kicking around for a long time, and he wanted to make this. And then UA 
wasn't going to make this. And then they hired him for Lord of the Rings. So Lord of the Rings, he then developed when that fell apart and the rights went to Bakshi instead. He took almost all of the visual work and visual ideas that he'd worked on and just brought them over to this. It's a, So I, I, I think it's a fascinating movie. I would definitely recommend Excalibur to anybody even remotely interested in the Arthurian legends and this kind of fiction and this kind of mythology. I think this is a great young early Helen Mirren performance, and it's one of the first times I really noticed her. All of her stuff is with Nicole Williamson. And I do think, and it's funny because Nicole Williamson is the thing that they fought him on. They didn't want him to cast him and they argued with Borman endlessly about it and didn't want to fund it. Williamson is the reason to see the movie. I think his performance as Merlin is really... What are you afraid of? I don't know. Shall I tell you what's out there? Yes, please. The dragon. A beast of such power that if you were to see it whole, and all complete in a single glance, it would burn you to cinders. Where is it? It is everywhere. It is everything. Its scales glisten in the bark of trees. Its roar is heard in the wind. And its forked tongue strikes like... Blight. Oh, like lightning. Yes, that's it. He's doing something. I think uh, the guy, and I always forget his name, but the guy who plays King Arthur in this, I think is a bore i think literally i have trouble remembering him while i'm looking at i i, I think that's almost by design no no i could no. maybe but it's tough and i think guinevere is also equally dull to have guinevere and arthur be sort of the black holes of charisma at the center of this i feel like it unbalances it in a lot of ways now here's a great trivia footnote for those of you who are fans of excalibur when i went to the set of sucker punch the Zack snyder film and there's that whole medieval sequence in that movie uh, where there's armor and stuff that they're wearing. That armor is the armor from Excalibur. Zack Snyder wanted to remake Excalibur when he couldn't get the rights to it. He reached out through Michael Wilkinson, his costume designer, and they found out that Warner still had that armor actually in storage. They took it, they repurposed it, and that armor is all over Sucker Does Punch. Zack Snyder not realize that the King Arthur legend is in the public domain and he doesn't have to actually get permission from Warner Brothers to make a movie? He wanted to actually do Excalibur, and Brian Singer's the same way they just wanted the name they wanted to actually have the name excalibur because they grew up in the 80s and remember it like it to them that name is the reason to do it not anything else so guys this has been a like i said a packed month full of really crazy diverse different things like the the fact that we could have come as far as we did this month and end up with excalibur man that is something else um please if you love the uh the podcast please remember Visit our Patreon site. Uh, also visit us at 80sallover.com. Uh, we have our Amazon store there. Anything that we've talked about on the show, we're going to have links to it. You can buy it directly through there. We get a little change for that. Again, it helps keep us up and running. We depend on your support. We also need you guys to rate and review the show and to tell people to listen to it. You guys have done a great job. People like you will get to discover Caveman because of people like us. And then next yeah. month, we've got Baghead Hillbilly Jason. We've got Richard Pryor. We've got Sean Connery in outer space. And you want some John Waters? Oh, man, we have got John Waters. That is just a taste of what we will be talking about next time in May of 1981.